and welcome to the Cinephile New Wave. I'm Nick. And I'm Duran. And today we are joined by a very special guest, one of uh, many professors of the UMD Film Department, Mr. Paul Cote. Hey, good to be here. Great to have you. Uh, to probably actually say that it's Cody. Um, oh, oh, it's yeah. it is Cody. Oh my God, I've been saying it wrong this whole time. It's okay, that's fine. Well, well, here's the deal. I honestly don't usually even notice it because it's I've heard it pronounced Cote so many times that my brain at a certain point just said that's fine. Um, <laughs> but uh, since it's being recorded, I might as well say it's Cody. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Good to know. Oh yeah, I've had I've had my name like mispronounced so many times. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, pathetically, it should be Coat. So, like, there is, you're not entirely wrong, but that's how I. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for joining us, and I'm sorry for Nick uh, butchering your name. I'm sorry <laughs> I've been okay. getting it wrong. No, <laughs> like... no it's, not, it's not your fault. Um, uh, yeah, good to be here. Uh, sorry to start on such an awkward. <laughs> it's, it's all right. Yeah, it's it's all, right. all right. But it's good. Good to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, and today we watched. Um, Phantom of the Paradise. Yes, Brian De Palma. 1974. Yeah. A uh, very strange, very rocky horror-like cult film. Glam rock opera. Yes. Um, See, I thought it was just a normal, everyday, average film. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> you didn't think it was just generic, like, part of the Marvel Universe? Certain <laughs> I had no idea what it was going into it. I mean, all I knew was that it was directed by Brian De Palma. Definitely not something that I was expecting. <laughs> it's yeah. the, the sort of movie where I think that literally from one moment to the next, you're probably going to have no idea what's ha what's happening or why it's happened. It makes oh, sense yeah. after the movie's over, but there's very much a, wait a minute, this just happened? <laughs> That's true. I kind of like regret looking up the Wikipedia summary, or not the Wikipedia, the, um, like, like the brief description that it was a um, right. combination of like, Faust and uh, Phantom of the Opera because if I hadn't known that going in it would have made it even stranger I think <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, definitely but, uh, before getting into uh, the film where we have some interesting news topics so let's start with that would you um, like to introduce this first one Daron? sure so this is about a week ago um, a uh, congressman from Tennessee Steve Cohen uh is leading a bill to reintroduce an effort to strip J. Edgar Hoover's name from um, the FBI building. And this is actually inspired by um, the release of the film Judas and the Black Messiah, which is a uh, biopic on Fred Hampton, a, um, a leader of the uh, Black Panther Party who was actually uh, murdered by the FBI in the 60s. Um, so the reason I chose this article is because there's a lot of things I found very interesting about it. Um, first of all, I, I think that Hoover is such like an, an integral part of um, the FBI's history that removing his name is kind of, well, first of all, disingenuous because it, it, it kind of, it seems like a way of kind of erasing it's like very like problematic history. Um, the real problem with the FBI cannot just be solved by, by removing a name. And I, I don't necessarily think the bill um, is trying to say that. But because like this bill, because like there isn't really any efforts to like kind of 
find systemic change in the FBI. Um, and instead, like, we just have this, I don't know, kind of, like, service-level bill that all it's doing is changing the name. It kind of, like, rubs me off the wrong way. Especially that, um, since the film, like, brings up such, like, um, deep-seated problems within the FBI. What did, uh, you guys think about this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's same kind of take as yours, where it's just, like, this doesn't do much to fix anything. Yeah. And, I mean, it, you know, um, we were talking about it before, uh, uh, Professor Cody said it was, you know, it's a good first step, but, you know, at the same time, it's like, what what is this really accomplishing? Yeah. I think, so I've thought about it a little bit since you told me that it was happening five minutes ago. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I think that obviously the systemic problems are the biggest problems. Um, and, you know, only a year ago when William Barr was attorney general, it was still, we still had government officials trying to use um, the state to treat Black Lives Matter and Antifa as though they were as though they were problems the FBI should be combating and not um, symptoms of something the FBI needed to be um, fixing from within. Yeah, but um, I I think there is some value in coming forward and saying these are no longer our values, even if it's only lip service to them, because you can't. Sometimes lip service is the the first step. Um, yeah, that is true. And just being able to say that. We no longer honor the legacy of Hoover, even um, even if he's the reason this building exists. We are at least no longer like paying tribute to his memory by naming this building after him. There is, I think, a because there is a symptom of when you name something after somebody, you're on some level saying this is somebody that we respect, that we want to honor, that we want to turn into a legacy that people should look up to um, or I guess a university it's somebody who spent money on a building and donated money regardless. <laughs> yeah. Um, we won't get into that. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but I think that if nothing else, um, I'd rather them rename it than not rename it. Um, I think definitely the big thing to be concerned about is whether or not that becomes an excuse to not take any other action. And right. that means that we just have to really put pressure on our representatives to make sure that they're not letting this uh, symbolic gesture only be a symbolic gesture. I think that the, the reason why this particularly irritates me is because to me, the FBI is nothing else but J. Edgar Hoover and right. like, his ideology. So what what is left like when you when you take that away it's just kind of like this strange racist very problematic like autonomous system that no longer has a name you know i mean if the question is whether or not the fbi should exist um i think that's a that's a much more difficult thing to unpack on a practical <laughs> level um, i do not think it should exist that's that's my take but yes we won't go into yeah, it yeah that's, that's fair <laughs> uh, I expect it's one of those things where if we took it away, we'd probably realize there were things it was doing that we needed. Mm -hmm. um, but that could also, I don't know, though. that could also be just my sort of inner fear of change. Um, yeah. I do feel like when Trump was president, we did sort of start to realize, oh, there are aspects of 
the CIA and the FBI that, you know, as liberals, we were always really angry about. And we always thought this is a big, deep state. They run everything. As it turns out, no, like, no, a lot of this is just these are the rules that they're following. And on some level, they're not a foolproof bulwark against someone like um, Trump who wants to use it purely for political ends. But they're also not entirely adaptable to someone like that either. And even Barr had his limits, awful as he was. Um, so I don't know. I think that I I don't know. I think you have to be very naive and optimistic to think that all of the systemic racism built into so much of our government can just change uh, and yeah. be and be reformed. Um, I also don't know what happens if we try to get rid of it because what do we replace it with? It's going yeah. to be something. It's going to be that some is, other version yeah. of the state, and it's not like all these career politicians and and people who were rising to those ranks you can't take away the ideology that was part of that um, right i'm just scared that um if the name is removed a lot of the baggage that came with it too um and, and like a lot of what like the evils of the fbi can be attributed to will kind of like be slowly like forgotten absolutely um, sure especially because like you know, just how like much of an evil individual Xavier Hoover was and you know generally I'm not one to criticize individuals I like to criticize the system but Hoover is the one who created this system yeah right yeah right well I think I guess you know I don't mean I, I I'm not optimistic but you could think of it like this like you know we're talking about this because a movie like Jesus and the Black Messiah made mainstream um the narrative that he was racist yeah. and um whatnot and and 20 years ago that would not have been the mainstream narrative yeah uh, that's true yeah. I, I saw another kind of recent article about how uh like judas and the black messiah was kind of like the latest in the kind of you know turning of the narrative for j edgar hoover because like it, even like what what was it like 2009 clint eastwood would made j edgar with yeah leonardo dicaprio, DiCaprio um, it didn't, yeah. i didn't see it yeah. so i don't know how that depiction anybody was, but i gotta <laughs> assume that that was i saw that when i was far too young i don't know why my, my parents took me to that movie <laughs> but um from what i remember it, it certainly wasn't a like complete uh celebration of j edgar mm. but yeah it certainly did not go to the lengths of yeah. uh, judas and the black messiah i can't imagine clint right. eastwood would no probably not clint eastwood has his own problems yeah um, yeah but yeah, with with Just the Black Messiah, I did I did enjoy the movie a lot. I, I I did see it. Um, I I also did feel like it didn't really. It could have like gone a lot further. Although it is nice to see like. Um, radical politics portrayed, semi decently in the mainstream, right? Because, like like we were saying before, twenty years ago, this this would have never happened yeah 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 i i liked it too i think that everything i think i think for me to have loved it a little more emphasis on the relationships would have i think made it click a little more because it felt in some ways like the movie kept moving and what it was depicting was you know what needs to be depicted but i don't know that i ever quite felt the um 
the conflicted loyalties of the lead the way that I think a real I think like the tragedy of that character never quite clicked for me the way it might have if there had been less emphasis on moving the plot forward and more on just these relationships but but that isn't is that more important than finally giving this story a more honest assessment probably not like i think there's a and i think like the sort of values that we're sort of taught to value in movies i think one nice thing about uh or one important thing challenging thing about kind of thinking about more diverse voices telling stories that it also shifts your focus on what's supposed to be the most important part of telling a story because for a long time only one group of people were were writing those rules about how we value this art so you know i i try to uh listen even though i'm also reacting yeah mm-hmm. yeah absolutely the, I think the problem now is uh, the money is still going into the hands of the same people. Yeah. Ultimately, yeah. that's what yeah. really matters. Right? Yeah, yeah. It's where the, it's where the capital yeah. goes to. Yep. Um, I mean, no, like if, no. if, uh, if it wasn't profitable to make a movie like Judas and the Black Messiah today, it would never be made. Yeah. Certainly, like the fact that it is um, bringing out more diverse voices to the mainstream is great. But if it wasn't, if the profit like incentive wasn't there in the first place, it would have never happened. Yeah. Um, well, the question of mainstream, too, is a big open question mark with this whole streaming um, question, because it's not as though, you know, 20 years ago, mainstream meant it's just going to play in every movie theater, and it's just going yeah, to be a true. movie that most people talk about. Uh, the whole idea of HBO Max and Netflix and Disney Plus all kind of carving out a little niche of different viewers um, and catering to them didn't really exist that way. And I don't think it's always a bad thing for art necessarily. I think it does mean that some stuff that wasn't otherwise possible has been made possible, but it also means that mainstream is kind of a tricky idea now. Yeah, I guess it's possible to create content for more like niche audiences now due to streaming. Um, and like we, we talked about like Netflix's algorithms and the benefits and the bad parts about it and and previous podcasts but that relates to that too right yeah um but yeah um moving on so another important thing that happened this week was the oscar nominations everyone's favorite (laughs) award show everyone's favorite i mean it's is it it gets it it right every single time is it better or worse than the golden globes i don't know yeah, it, and it's better, I think, in that it's. I think that at least with the Oscars, you know how it works. The, these are, it's it's the awards that Hollywood gives to itself. Um, <laughs> True. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas the Golden Globes are, who are these random people who can who are, <laughs> who are so easily bribed, um, and who have so little oversight and. I think it's a fun show sometimes because that's so freewheeling and it's so easy to make fun of it. But I don't know that. Uh, I think you can make an argument for the Oscars. I don't know that there is an argument for the Globes. I think they're just so <laughs> mm-hmm. fair. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, let me let me just list the best picture nominations just to you know in case anybody hasn't heard them at this point. So we got Sound of Metal, Mank, Minari. Promising Young Woman, The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, The Trial of the Chicago 7, and Nomadland. Does anybody have an opinion on who they think will win? 
You 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 keep saying it's Mank, and it's, I don't know if I, I believe that. Uh, I definitely think Mank will win. Not because I like it. I in fact I hate that movie. <laughs> I do too. Okay. <laughs> Great. I'm I'm glad. I'm glad. Me too. Um, but I, it's it is the perfect Oscar movie, in that it's about right. movie making, right? Uh huh. It's yeah. about like this underdog story, right? It has like a stupid gimmick. The black and white and the very excellently done production design. It has Gary Oldman. Yeah. It has a strong lead performance. <laughs> Gary Oldman. It has a um, Hollywood fav- a favorite, David Fincher, who hasn't won an Oscar yet, right? I don't think so. Yeah. So it kind of like has all of the makings of what seemed to be um, a-, a Taylor Cup winner, in my opinion. Yeah. I think in year. I think ten years ago. I'd have agreed it's the surefire winner. It seems like I don't know if that tends to be where they lean so much anymore. Um, that is a good it's point. It's been a while. It's been since Birdman, basically, right? Since a movie about movies um, took home everything. And even Birdman weirdly didn't win in some of the big categories you thought was going to win in. Um, I don't know, though. Maybe I'm just being... Um, maybe I'm just uh, distracted by... Just how awful I thought Mank was. Yeah. Uh, like, and I think that it's one of those movies where it got some really strong reviews, but there's also a pretty vocal undercurrent of people who were just like, "What is this? Why?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and those movies often have a hard time winning because it's because you you have to kind of rally enough people to uh, to love the movie. Polarizing movies have a hard time winning the middle of the road movies that no one really hates because it, you know, you're everyone's third choice is often the best shot because ultimately yeah. your third choice ends up being the same as everybody else's third choice. And your first choice is <laughs> yeah, all splitting, about splitting the vote is, is, you know, yeah. such a big problem. Like I, is that why green book one was because I think it's a big part of it. Choice? Maybe I yeah. know that it's yeah. why, um, Roger Deakins lost in 2007. Yeah. He nominated twice for cinematography. <laughs> Yeah, it definitely splits the vote. Because um, I'm I'm part of a smaller uh, awards body, um, the International Film Music Critics Association, and it's um, it's a film music centered awards thing. Um, and every year when I'm voting, there's a part of me that's like, all right, I've got to be strategic because if I put forward my actual favorite, my actual favorite is some weird obscure thing that no one else will vote. <laughs> so I'm more yeah. or less throwing this vote away. I often do anyway because I'm stubborn. But I also understand, yeah, the mediocre mainstream blockbuster that we all put as number four is probably going to rise to the top once everyone's weirdo personal pick gets screened out. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't know, though. I, I think Nomadland, I just feel like it has a better shot than I otherwise would think. And it's in part because I love the film, but it also seems like everyone who saw Nomadland loved it. Whereas I don't know that I haven't met many people who liked Mank. I know there are critics <laughs> who did, but it's just so cringily written, and Gary Oldman oh, yeah. is just so miscast. Um, I think it'll take home cinematography most likely, and it, yeah, it, it's yeah. very well, very well designed. Um, I'm hoping that's as far as it goes. Yeah. Um, I I agree. I think I'm I'm on the side of Nomadland for for winning best picture this year because I, I i think yeah it's just the most generally like agreeable movie plus it, it won right. like all the awards leading up right yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah 
I haven't seen everything nominated. I think I've seen half of the nominees. But Nomadland is, I think, one of the only movies I've seen this year that viscerally moved me, where I, mm. where I felt just uh, emotionally changed after the film was over. And um, it's kind of sad that that's, that was so rare this year. But I think that seems to be... I don't, I don't see a lot of blowback towards Nomadland. Besides, uh, I don't, I'm not a big fan. Not a big fan? <laughs> sure. No. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, but you, you liked it. It's actually kind of like, have you, you know how movies it, like grow on you yeah, over it's, time? It's slumped on you? It's slumped on me. Damn. Yeah. Like, it's slumped on you? Yeah. Uh, sure. It's not, but do you not hate terrible. it you hate Mank, though? I do hate Mank, yes. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the, I think that's the, the thing. Like, there are plenty of movies that are acclaimed where you watch and you're like, okay, eh, I guess, Sure. Mank feels like you watch it and you're angry at the people who liked it. <laughs> you oh, like. yeah, or sure. or vice versa, you're you watch it and you're angry that people don't like it the way you like it. It seems like it's very much a this seems to viscerally respond to some people in very extreme ways. Not to sound elitist, but I feel like the only way you can like Mank is if like you might have seen Citizen Kane and you liked it but you know, like, nothing behind the history. Sure. <laughs> because, like, Mink is completely built on, on this lie by Polly and Kale, which is the, um, the Susan Cain book. Oh, yeah, I know. Right, yeah. And so for, for those that don't know, that don't know um, it was this lie that she made that she made into a book um, that basically said that uh, um, Herman Minkowitz was the sole writer of Susan Cain and that um, Orson Welles, like, didn't contribute to it all. Um, but had since been like heavily disproven many people including like peter bogdanovich wrote to her and like people that like here her own co-worker said like yeah this is like complete fabrication um and so like the the script for mink was written in like the early 70s which is like around when this came out and i mean since the script was written by david fincher's dad jack fincher yeah his name was called right um and he's he's since died um I would assume that David Fincher didn't really want to edit the script very much, even though it's, like, extremely inaccurate. And I'm not really one for caring about accuracies too much, but if it's, like, one as egregious as this one, it's a little bit annoying. And if the movie was good, right. I would let it slide, but the movie is terrible. <laughs> right. um, yeah, Nick knows. The reason I said that, I know I wasn't trying to be sardonic. I just happened to uh, teach that Kale thing when I oh, teach really? Kale. Um, um, because it is like it's a really great back and forth like here's Pauline and Kale here's um, here's Ceres uh, hashing it out and yeah I think that so here's my understanding is that Fincher took his dad's script and the original draft of it was much more heavily about the wells uh, mank fight and much more like a, a relitigation of the kale raising cane book um mm. and fincher kind of felt like you know this is very anti-auteur theory and i'm a director and i think my dad's kind of going overboard so i'm going to rewrite this a little bit to minimize that and the movie does for the most part it's not really directly about who wrote citizen kane until the last scene, when suddenly there's this big confrontation that clearly in the original script, everything was building to. But yeah. here, it just kind of comes out of nowhere. And then you get like the cut to, here's what really, here's what happened afterwards. Here's what Wells and Mankiewicz said about when they won the Oscar. And 
the movie we've been watching hasn't really even been about that. So it's been, it's just such a weird way of, you're rewriting it, but you're still keeping that animosity as though that was the movie. Yeah, well, yeah. I, I think it was, it was very, like, he did that very much as, like, this movie is basically a meta-narrative, I feel, about his dad and, like, kind of right. the legacy that he left, just kind of, mm -hmm. like, retroactively, I guess I'd say. Which, I mean, I can, I can respect. Yeah. Especially if, it, if it's, like, a, sure. an older filmmaker, like, like, Fincher, a very experienced one. At the same time, though, that doesn't mean I have to like the movie. Yeah. No, it's absolutely bad. not. <laughs> I think, honestly, I'd have forgiven, you know, I'm a big Wells um, fan, and, and um, uh, but that part really didn't bug me as much as just, I feel like uh, Mank feels like Poochie to me from The Simpsons. It's just like <laughs> he wanders through this movie. Oldman is just so miscast to me. Like he's older than the character's supposed to be. He's supposed to be this character. He's supposed to be, the movie only makes sense if you buy Mank as this guy who's so funny and so charismatic yeah. that he can just kind of sing for his supper through Hollywood. That, that Hearst keeps him around because he's such this funny wit. And everything out of his mouth is just so clunky and stupid. Like, there's a part where they're walking by some drafts and, and Oldman's like, ah, talk about sticking the old neck out. And everyone laughs. <laughs> well, what it was the 40s. On? Maybe they would have found it funny then. <laughs> yeah. He really, he really yeah. took to the 40s humor. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know that they would have found it funny then, though, because there were really funny 40s movies. Um, these are just, like, they're, they're one-liners that they're obvious and they're and they're not clever any given line of his girl friday is better than that stick in the old neck outline because there's no oh, actual man. connection to the to the pun um it's just literally it's almost like word association um yeah i i wonder um my wife and i talked about this she suggested that if paul rudd had been cast in the league, it <laughs> oh might have worked. Uh, oh my god. Because he's someone that you could buy as being so inherently likable that you would just, even these stupid one-liners, he might be able to sell them if he get, delivers them with just enough of a wink and a self-effacing grin. Um, but Gary Oldman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, oh, Gary. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, getting getting back to the Oscars, um, I, I was I was wondering. I, I I was mentioning at the beginning of the podcast before we recorded, um, about how like the Oscars have this declining relevancy. Yeah. Um, you know, for the last like couple of decades, but um, what what role do the Oscars have now in the streaming era? Where and you especially know, this year. Yeah, like all all the theaters are closed, and like I mean, I'd I'd. I think that a lot of people haven't seen a lot of these nominated movies, even even more than in the past, where um, movies that are nominated are like typically not movies that like uh, most people would like go out and see. Yeah, oh, I, I I usually will have seen like half of the nominations at least, but like I've seen like two this year. Mm -hmm. Even among like cinephiles, I feel like um, uh, there there's there's very few that I've met that I've seen like most of the nomination nominated films. Huh. See, weirdly, I feel the opposite only in that in most years when the nominees come out a little earlier, for one thing, 
a lot of these movies, most of us literally couldn't see unless you get screeners because mm-hmm. they're bound to theaters and they're in these limited runs where they open in two cities to hit the cut and then you won't actually find them in your theater until late February, mid-March. And that's only if they get nominated. And even then, um, only if you live in a city where there's a good indie theater. All of these movies, except for The Father, um, if you want to watch them, you can. If you want to spend $20 to watch Minari. I'm not sure if Minari is available yet, but I, all the I rest. I so. Is it? Oh, okay. Um, um, you can get HBO Max for and watch Judas and the Black Messiah. You can get Hulu and watch um, uh, Promise, not Promising a Woman. What's on Hulu right now? Oh, uh, Nomadland. Some of these are Netflix movies. Um, you know, I've I haven't seen Sound of Metal, and I haven't seen Minari or The Father or Chicago Seven, but two of those movies have been in my queue, and I know that I can watch them in a heartbeat. And the other two, I'm sure, will will be available to me shortly. Now, I don't like spending twenty dollars to rent a movie. Um, oh hell no! <laughs> that feels viscerally upsetting to me. But I do think that because people have been so cooped up this year, it's been, I think a lot of people watched Mank who wouldn't otherwise have bothered with Mank, for example. Yeah, I think a lot true. of people watched Mank who would never have gone to the movie theater to watch Mank. And that might be part of the reason why there's been, I think, a much more varied range of opinions about it because it became something that if you were in certain circles, you just watched because why not? You have Netflix. Um, and now you have an opinion about it even if you wouldn't have otherwise bothered to invest the time in going to the landmark cinema and sitting through this movie. Um, I don't know. In terms of their relevance, I'm not sure if the Oscars have ever been truly relevant. It seems like a conversation that every year we have, um, right? Like it's, um, I like the idea that people actually have access to these movies in ways they didn't before. If people aren't watching them though, I'm not sure Is that any different from the way they were five years ago? Not five years ago, 10 years ago, before they upped the nominees to nine plus? I'm Uh, sure. I don't know. (laughs) Something, I don't know, but something does feel a little bit different about this year and the nominees. You know what I think it is? Is that, like, just none of it feels pressing at all? And I, we already kind of said that, but I think, I think the Maybe it's because it's on streaming. Yeah, I think the real difference is here is that, like, I didn't even know what the Oscars were going to, like, look like at all. I didn't know what to look out for because I had, like, already written this year off as, like, like, I don't even know what to do with this year in movies. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's, it's this kind of, like, like, I have access to these films, but, like, I don't know if I really wanted to watch them. I just... I was probably only going to watch them so that I could say that I've seen, you know, the Oscar movies this year. Right. Yeah. As a conversation point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, I think also... I, 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 oh, like, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I, I just wonder how the Oscars will remember last year in, in movies and, like, kind oh, of... God. Because, like, we have... So we, we have this idea, which is, you know, completely, completely wrong that the Oscars highlight, you know, the most important movie of that year and that the Oscars should, like, um, 
give awards to the movies that will that will remember in the next like two years. And oh, so like they did maybe do that last year. Yes, maybe. they 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 do get it right once every like ten or fifteen times. <laughs> right. But um, I, I'm curious how if you know the Oscars have this believe that they hold this kind of like um significance. Um, how they will try to remember last year in terms of movies. Well, I think, Nick, what you kind of brought up is interesting. I think it's probably the, how COVID enters this unpredictable wrinkle here and that everyone was stuck at home the past year for the most part. Um, we were probably streaming more content than ever before, but for a lot of people, um, self-included in many cases, the, the mental space that you need to be in to feel like, yeah, I'm going to watch a three-hour movie about processing grief, or I'm going to watch a three-hour <laughs> art movie about trauma. That in, in ordinary times, that might have been there. But this year, I think for a lot of people, it was, I just want to marathon every episode of Shit's Creek. I just want to rewatch all of Star Trek again. Um, the Muppet Show is on streaming. Amazing. That's going to be my <laughs> weekend. And I think for a lot of people, just like getting through this has meant finding different forms of comfort food. And and that's different for different people. And comfort food's great. A lot of the shows that people turn to are great. But the sorts of movies that Oscars kind of gravitate towards were, I think, in many cases, not the movies that people had the bandwidth for this year. Yeah. I this This year was very much like a kind of check off stuff on your watch list that you've you know been meaning to watch here or you know i watched like all of community this year it's <laughs> right it, it right. was it was just like i didn't i didn't have an interest in promising young woman i just didn't <laughs> yeah that's true um, and like um at least for me so typically the most new movies i see are in theaters and since i can't go to the theater i really don't have that much of an incentive to like go out and search for new movies on streaming if i can if i have this gigantic backlog of movies from you know yeah um the beginning of history <laughs> and it you know it's like yeah and it's a, such a different experience seeing like an oscar movie and like you know going to the afi or something to like mm -hmm. see one of those movies in theaters is a lot different than accepting the fact that you're going to have to watch this on your tv at home while you can hear dogs barking and you know all the other things that you'll be able to hear that's just like right it's just like what uh this isn't really the kind of setting that i want to watch this in so yeah why am i doing this it doesn't even feel like a new movie yeah me, at least it yeah. just feels right. like another piece of thing on my tv i don't know content well, when you go to the movie you're that movie is competing for maybe eight other movies attention um your choices are are between the movies that are new if you're at home that movie is competing with every single movie and TV show ever created. Yeah. <laughs> Fighting for your attention. Uh, it's a much different, different, I can calculus. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Um, All right, man. Should we move on to yeah, I'm the good film? To, I'm good to move on if uh, right. everybody else is. All right. Phantom of the Paradise. Who wants to give a brief summary of the film? Uh, I mean, I can if you want me to. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. So Phantom of the Paradise is a uh, 1974 Brian De Palma film. Um, like we said in the beginning, it's a glam rock opera. It's based on Faust, 
the picture of Dorian Gray and Phantom of the Opera. I didn't realize the Dorian Gray stuff until Duran told me about it, but well, it comes um, pretty late in the movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't really know the story of Dorian Gray, so Neither like, do I. I really don't even like know where it, where it went into um, it. But um, so the the movie is actually about this guy who writes this rock opera and performs it in front of this big producer who then steals it and this guy just tumbles down this path and becomes very disfigured and he he decides to haunt this building where they were going to perform his his sacred rock opera his his cantata is that the that the word cantata i think that's what he it's the word he uses i'm not sure if it's really <laughs> accurate to what he writes <laughs> <laughs> just makes it sound cooler but yeah. um yeah he um he does kind of a you know phantom of the opera type thing to that theater and I'll I'll let the rest of the movie be for anyone who still wants to see it. Because as much as we like talk about the movie in the description, I think it's very difficult to spoil this movie. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's also hard to like when you just everything you described about the plot is accurate to the plot. But it feels like when you hear the plot of this movie taken by itself, it will suggest a very different movie to what you actually experience when you watch it. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, it's such a, a strange tonally uh all over the let's i think what i find so fascinating about this movie in part is that tonally it's very precise in what it's trying to do but it's so hard to pin down yeah it's like i mentioned the acting pretty early on when talking to nick how like the acting kind of rubbed me like a in a strange way it, it, it is like kind of it's theatrical. more stagey, I think. Yeah, it's like stagey, theatrical. Yeah. yeah. Kind of like, like early Hollywood movie acting, in a way. Yeah, which, I mean, it definitely makes sense for the kind of, you know, thing mm -hmm. they're going for. And so, like, I definitely got this kind of, like, campy, theatrical, satirical kind of tone. Yeah. But all of those words don't really mean anything. At the same time, <laughs> put together, it is a very specific tone. Yeah, um, what were your, what are uh, the kind of, like, overall thoughts on the movie? Like, obviously, you love it, because you're the one who suggested it. Um, Duran, what, what would you say is, like, kind of your general opinion? Um, so I liked a lot of it. I liked, um, a lot of, like, the experimental, like, editing and cinematography. There's this one, um, uh, what's it called? Dual screen? Uh, yeah, split screen. Split screen, There's yeah. one split screen I'd like to talk about a bit yeah. later, which is, I thought it was really cool. Um, and I liked some of the critiques it had of, like, the music industry, and I guess, um, the film industry, too, if we were to take it further. Um, overall, I'm, I'm not too sure, like, what to really make of it, honestly. I don't really know if I, if I liked it, even, to be honest. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it was, it was a very, a very, a very strange experience, but it's, it's certainly a unique one. Yeah, I, I really liked it. I... I said in my my review on Letterboxd, I I, <laughs> I said this this film emanates the feeling that a lot of my favorite films emanate. I just can't precisely pin down what that feeling is. But right. I, just, I I really like how kind of like creative and out there and different the whole thing is from like you know, really every movie <laughs> it feels like nowadays. <laughs> Yeah, it's a movie that for me, um, you know, I first saw it nearly a decade ago um, in um, Taza, actually. We briefly hmm. did this oh, nice. thing where we, a friend um, would set up a projector on the roof of Taz and we'd watch movies there in the summer, and that had to stop 
because we couldn't figure out how to keep making it working um, technology-wise. But one guy recommended this movie, and we watched we watched it. I think I watched half of it there and half of it by myself, and loved it, but didn't quite absorb it because when you're watching something outdoors, the sound is kind of all echoey, and you aren't quite absorbing it. And I kind of on a whim, uh, a month ago or so, Amazon was having one of those buy one Blu-ray get two free, or buy two get one free. And I was like, I've always wanted to watch this again. It'd be cool to have it. And somehow watching it again, every moment just is pure dopamine for me. Like it's just like hmm. every everything about this is just so pleasing, musically, visually. And I think that um, it's just so many things that I love in movies, just all combined in one. Um, somehow it's hard again like i said earlier it's hard to really totally pin down how this movie makes you feel or how it works but i also feel like it doesn't feel inconsistent the way that some that movies that are often compared to this like rocky mm -hmm. horror i love rocky horror but i think rocky horror is also kind of all over the place um rocky horror never quite under it's never quite clear on whether you're supposed to like uh tim curry's character or whether you're supposed to think he's a monster and it seems like it changes from scene to scene and it seems part of it i think that movie's beauty and pleasure is just how all over the place it is and how it seems like even the people making it were never quite sure of how to control it and that's how it became so beloved and i really feel like Phantom of paradise kind of is aware from moment to moment exactly what level of satire and what level of earnestness is supposed to be there in any given moment and how much sympathy you're supposed to feel for these people and how much you're supposed to be disgusted with them. Um, <laughs> it's, which is usually a combination of both. Um, like that opening number, I think is the, the, the fifties doo-wop um, greaser ballad, which is both a hysterical send up of those sorts of songs. Um, I think some of the funniest lyrics I've heard in a song and the way like they're just so, over the top and hammy and, and, and contrite, I mean, contrived, but it's also such a catchy bop. And <laughs> yeah. there's somehow there's some real emotion in there. And it does kind of outline it is a story about a guy who decides that he's going to kill himself in order to make his album sell better, which, and, and it's so nakedly commercial, but it's also so heavily sentimentalized by the song, which is so much of what the movie is going to be doing going forward. Um, yeah, I, I there are so many things I could talk about when it comes to this movie, so I'll let you all kind of guide that. Um, I think that uh, you mentioned something about how this movie's like tone seems pretty consistent, and even though like this film kind of should be all over the place and like not make any sense, it does feel fairly consistent throughout. Um, that's compared to like Rocky Horror, and I think like probably a lot of that is due to um, De Palma's direction. I would think because. De Palma is, is very much, like, obsessed with form and, like, a classic, like, Hitchcock style, right? I know, like, right. a lot of his early films get, um, compared to, like, Hitchcock things, because I know, like, he, like, storyboards, like, everything, I think. Um, and yeah, and this like, one especially, he talks about, because this movie, I think, more than any of his movies, it really does, it feels like a cartoon in some ways, in that it just feels like every shot could only look this way. It's mm -hmm. like, you no, know, and he yeah. talks about how he doesn't like coverage. He doesn't mm -hmm. like doing the thing where you have the same shot, the same scene shot with like six different cameras 
So you have options later for the edit. He just goes and is like, the camera needs to be right there. It needs to move right here. That's what this scene looks like. I'm not going to, and when you look at the way the movie's constructed, there are so many shots where it only really even works for the camera to do what it's doing. Like Paul Williams enters at this bizarre angle that makes him look like this is the devil. And it only works because the camera happens to be shooting him from the right profile with the right mirror reflecting the right part of his face. Mm -hmm. And every shot kind of feels that way. Yeah, every shot's like extremely controlled, like uh, like Kubrick. Yeah. Or like Hitchcock, yeah. I, I, I really, I love Paul Williams in this movie. He's he's so good. He's, he's so great. He's just, uh, I, 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 think I love actually... his hair. I love his, his glasses. <laughs> I just like, that whole look. He, he looks like, um, Duran pointed this out, he looks like the guy in, um, uncut gems who's like the casino owner i don't know if you were yeah he kind of does yeah. yeah the guy with the helicopter <laughs> yeah but that, that i think whole... honestly yeah. Go i ahead, think sorry. the tone works the way it works because a lot of other de palma movies they're very controlled but they do kind of feel like the tone is all over the place um because i i like de palma but i also i often feel like he's making me feel icky where I don't know that he's trying to. Um, something like Body Double or Dress to Kill or Carrie often feels like he's going over the top, but it's not quite clear whether he's trying to be genuinely sentimental or whether it's supposed to be commentary. And I often don't know if he's quite in control of that emotion. Um, I think the Paul Williams music just kind of guides you all the way through with this one where you sort of like, okay, this is exactly, the register here is tongue-in-cheek a little bit biting satire but there is some emotion underneath all of this glitz and and glamour it's not like something like um um dress to kill where the pino Donaggio score is so sentimental that it makes you wonder whether or not you're supposed to be like complicit in this or not um i don't know what are your thoughts about the holland the palma in general um what are you too familiar with when it comes to him um so i haven't seen a lot of his films like compared to hitchcock so like just to kill body double like and like some of his like earlier stuff but i've seen like um the untouchable scarface mm -hmm. um some of his later stuff off, off the top of my head oh blowout is probably my favorite from him i really like yeah blowout. the big ones so yeah. i've i've only ever actually seen scarface mission impossible blowout and then this i still need to see carrie i don't know how i've avoided carrie this long but... yeah i actually haven't seen carrie either but yeah this was I, I think this might be my favorite of his films though like this really like i don't know i really like just connected with this i i love just how over the top it is the the use of color the whole paradise itself looks amazing uh you know the phantom's costume looks amazing I love yeah. that helmet so much with, with the one eye covered and the one oh, yeah, eye that cool. isn't the black lipstick. There's just like, I, I just, I love this so much. Um, yeah, I, I everything about the aesthetic. It's both like of its time, but also even though it's such a time capsule of the sort of glam excess of the 70s, early 70s, it also feels weirdly timeless because it's so bizarre and it's so over the top. Yeah. Um, and I think also it's all the influences are taken from so many different places. Like even describing the adaptation, it's Phantom of the Opera and it's also Faust. It's also Dorian Gray. 
Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene that is, huh? Something that they acknowledge in the film. Right, right. Like the there's a scene that's a direct homage to Touch of Evil's opening scene, but it's also a Beach Boys oh, really? parody. Um, Wait, which which part was that? The uh, the. the the split screen. The a, scene where Winslow movie. puts the bomb in the car. He puts the and bomb in the car. Right. Okay, I didn't even yeah, realize yeah, that. I, forgot, but like, I totally forgot. Now that you've that. said it, I'm putting that yeah, together. That makes sense. <laughs> well, but it's also I think there's so much. It's easy to miss something. It seems like it should be obvious because it's a touch of evil homage, but it's not just that. It's also a split screen, and so you're kind yeah. of the moment your brain might have said, "Oh, like touch of evil," your eyes already wandered to the other half of the screen. It took me several times to watching this before I realized that the song they're singing, the Beach Boys song, or Beach Boys parody song, is a really hacky version of the song that Winslow sings at the piano at the beginning of the movie. It's just been so butchered mm-hmm. that it's now come out as this beach doo-wop song. That's really funny. Yeah. Huh. But but you almost that of course I didn't recognize that because there's so much going on in that scene that yeah. you can't even really focus on one thing. Let's talk about that scene. That's definitely my favorite scene in the movie, like by far. Um, I, it's like probably one of the, the coolest split screens I, I have seen, especially at like the part where um, there's, there's, there's one part of the split screen where like the big bouncer looking guy, I forget his name, is like talking to this, um, this blonde guy and um the split screens meet and that they're both showing like the same thing but from like different angles which i thought was was really interesting i've never seen anything like that from from a split screen before usually it's like from two distinct locations it's very rare that a split screen is like even in the same room right well it's also i think part of the reason the poem talks about how hard that was to shoot because you have to somehow keep the cameras out of view from each other yeah, uh, yeah and it was it's very tricky to pull off especially when you're con- uh, strained to an actual stage oh yeah yeah with an interior yeah part uh, of my brain yeah. was definitely looking for like slip ups when <laughs> when that scene was yeah. going on you aren't gonna you're not gonna find one of those in a De Palma movie though <laughs> not <in the> De Palma. <laughs> yeah. yeah i um, um i i love um I, I loved how it ended, how, how you know, you are splitting your attention between these two screens, and then you're paying attention to um, the, it cuts to Paula Williams, and you're paying attention to that one, because it's now cut to Paula Williams, but then the thing explodes, and then yeah. you're like, oh shit, I just completely missed that. Yeah. <laughs> well, and it cuts to Winslow in the Phantom costume for this brief moment, just long enough for it to, like, burn into your brain and then it's then he's gone and the thing blows up mm-hmm. and it's on paul williams and his reaction which is of course like all right interesting <laughs> yeah apparently he was initially the palma had him in mind to play phantom uh paul williams mm-hmm. and i guess williams was like i you know i'm a short guy i can't really see anybody being afraid of me in this phantom costume but you know killing people whatnot but I can kind of see me making sense as this um, um, Phil Spector like like Creedon um, who's built this world around him. Yeah, I thought I thought he was he was great in that role. Yeah, um, he's. Oh. I love I love this the this the strange detail and and um, how like the contracts are supernatural. 
Yeah. Right? And you're, like, yeah. not allowed to kill yourself How or die. It's all in, like, old English and, like, yeah. it's, like, bound by, like, string and a bunch of, like, <laughs> parchment paper. Yeah, exactly. And, like, how, um... Even... I, I love that even the um even the tape is like written on the side in like that old kind of like English cursive. <laughs> oh yeah yeah. 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 <laughs> um that that was really funny. Um so yeah I thought, I thought that critique of the industry was was pretty pretty scathing but also like a little bit ridiculous in a in a fun way. Um, and I think that uh, one of the reasons why this film is so unique is not that it uh like apes off of like other works but in how it combines them all together right yeah to create something else so um i mean every every great artist is a thief right every every great artist like um steals from from other like works gets many different inspirations but um the way that you create something interesting is if um all the things that you steal from are unique in their own way and then you kind of create this like weird blend of all these things and to create something completely different out of those well i think a lot of the critique that often used to hit to palma in his early days and i don't know how fair this was but was that he's just imitating hitchcock like if you look at sisters it's just him doing hitchcock obsession is just a remake of vertigo blah 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 this and i think that his movie's movie. super <laughs> good table. um say what this is not a Hitchcock movie, I like at all. Yeah, it's got like a, an homage to Psycho, um, but even right. that twisted. It's any influence is mixed with so many different other things that it's really hard to say this is just an imitation of one given thing. It's such a melange of influences from all over the place. Yeah, exactly. If you have so many different influences, it ceases to like matter that it's those are influences. It becomes its own thing. Yeah. Um, even the songs like there are songs that are um, parodies imitations of you know Sha Na Na and the Beach Boys and kind of early Kiss but they're never just that there's always something a little bit off about them like an actual Sha Na Na 50s doo-wop song wouldn't have lines about like premature ejaculation uh, <laughs> hidden in their lyrics um, um <laughs> There's just something a little bit off about everything. Um, I think it's also why... So, I don't know if this is actually true, but I've read kind of um, um, rumors that different people they considered for the role of, of um, Swan, Bowie, and Mick Jagger. Hmm. And it does make me wonder, like, I could easily see a version of this movie where David Bowie plays Swan and does the songs for it. And I love David Bowie, I don't know if David Bowie would have been able to kind of write music that is so pointedly satirical about something so specific while also being its own thing. I think he might have made the music too, you know, air quotes, good or weird yeah. to really fit this movie, which needed something <laughs> so precise in what it was trying to parody. I, uh, I wasn't the biggest fan of music, I'll be honest. It wasn't really my thing. But you are right. I do think that, like, if David Bowie wrote the music and started in this movie, it'd be far too distracting and something completely different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I can totally see how they the songs. Um, I think they're just so much part of the tone. Like, even when yeah, they're not. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. Good, like, they're like they're they're part of why you get 
okay, here's what they're what they're being vicious about. Right. Like, I mean, I wouldn't listen to them outside of the movie, but they work for the movie very, very well. Right. For sure. Right. Yeah. And I think I I feel like all of the the kind of the placement of the songs is is perfect. I feel like in in the movie every song comes at like just the right moment where you're like, "Hey, wait, this is a musical. Shouldn't the next musical number be on?" And then it and then it comes on and you're like, "Okay, all right. <laughs> cool." They're also just I don't I assume it must be very hard to shoot and film a good musical number because so few people know how to do it. But just um, every song is so well staged here. Um, like the the song that Jessica Harper sings for her audition. Like sometimes she's singing directly to the camera. Sometimes the camera is panning off to the side. Like it's always just where the camera needs to be to keep you interested, even though you are sitting through, which should just be three minutes of one person on stage doing a number. It's really I. I don't know. I don't think De Palma's ever done a concert movie, but I now wish that he had because I, I think mm. he'd have been a king of that. I don't know if he would like to do a concert movie just because he wouldn't be able to get exactly what he wanted from every That's true. Oh, that is true. Yeah, <laughs> that's very mad at them. That's a good point. If uh, maybe if he were like to to not record it live. Yeah. Do he he yeah. could he could re- he could do something like Spike Lee doing you know like David Byrne's American Utopia like some kind of stage play I sure. think that would that would work out. Yeah, that would be actually that would be exactly what he should be doing. Maybe maybe who knows? He's not retired, but it feels like he more or less might as well be. His last couple of movies were apparently I didn't see them, but they were just abysmal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was really looking forward to Domino, but I heard that um, the studio like meddled with it and it was like pretty bad. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. Sucks. Yeah, but I mean, if anything, this movie shows me that De Palma can't really so easily put into the category of a Hitchcock imitator, right? Um, I mean, like like you said, right. um, there's obviously like references to Hitchcock in this film, but it's so much more than just like a Hitchcock movie. In fact, I would I would say that as like. There is. I don't get any sense of Hitchcock while watching this movie, whatsoever. Yeah, um, I think it might be his least Hitchcock Hitchcockian movie in that sense. Like, there's, mm-hmm. and even like again, the Psycho parody is almost like there is an inside joke to his fans. It, it doesn't even mm-hmm. really need to be in the movie. It's just kind yeah. of. I mean, for plot reasons, it does, but it's not even really of a piece with the rest of the film. Right. But that's kind of what makes it fit, right? Because there's, there's, yeah, there's yeah, just yeah. so many strange yeah. moments like that. Yeah. Um, what a... I don't know. I don't know what I was going to say. Anyway. <laughs> Do we... Uh, so what... Uh, can you point out... I know you said you didn't really like the music, but does anybody have a favorite number? Oh, man. Too many, too many to, to just. Uh... I, I really love the the number that plays during the end credits. The hell of it. Um, mm. I think that's such a great uh, dancing on your grave, Bob. Um, <laughs> it was a, I guess initially it was written for they were going to shoot a scene where uh, beef, like his funeral, takes place, and his funeral is turned into a big publicity event. And mm-hmm. while the funeral's happening. Winslow performs this song, like it's supposed to be like a song directed at Beef, basically. And 
the the bit towards the end when the actual end credits play and you see the, the phantom playing in the sound booth and you hear that tap dancing stuff there was supposed to be a little girl who starts tap dancing on the casket that's going to the <laughs> ground auditioning for swan and really i think that it's actually a saving grace that, that didn't happen because um maybe this is a good segue um in a little bit beef is the one part of the movie where i feel really uneasy about because that caricature kind of veers so close to homophobic caricature and i think that had this been had that song been like the song that played as he is getting his funeral that just feels like so much mean-spiritedness pointed in this direction and the song is so much better as a finale song as a all right all you fuckers are dead now and good riddance (laughs) all suck um (laughs) yeah um Um, but speaking speaking about beef you're right um i wasn't i wasn't quite sure to make of it but i mean certainly from a film from 74 you're you're not gonna get like a positive depiction of a of a gay character um but and like also with with the palm in general from the films i've seen um like he hasn't uh, I, like none of the female characters in his movies are like very well written i'm thinking about mm-hmm. like um nancy allen's character and like blowout for example who's very like i don't know stereotypical kind of like a like a plot device rather than a character yeah but, right and i felt like at least for that i did feel connections to hitchcock because i know like hitchcock gets um gets criticized for that too and, and the way that he uses like female characters you're talking about uh, Jessica Harper in this movie. Um, um actually, uh, I was I was talking more about Nancy Allen and uh, and Blood, Oh, oh, and and, and Dress yeah. to Kill. Yeah. Yeah, uh, gotcha. Yeah. And then yeah, I don't know about Jessica Harper in this movie. I thought she was more or less fun. I mean, she wasn't like particularly like nuanced or, or anything, but I didn't I was surprised by her singing. She yeah, that was um, yeah, great voice. My, my favorite number. That was probably my favorite one. She's an amazing voice. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I was very surprised that that voice was coming out of her. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I love how she has such a great voice, but her stage presence, they let her be so awkward and weird. Like, the dance she does is so... She's so clearly someone who is not, like, a studied professional, you know, singer in this movie. You really feel like she's got all of this ambition and energy, but she's kind of like Winslow in that all this talent is also really uh, still unpolished. Um, it's just her little chicken dance. Yeah. And she goes <laughs> up it's such a nice touch. And then she awkwardly walks back on because she's like, so she's not quite sure what she's supposed to do. It's such a great little human moment um, that you don't usually see in those contexts. She did, she did say she only wanted to sing, not dance. <laughs> yeah. Can't <Yeah>. blame her. <laughs> um, I think in that front, this movie, I, I'm not gonna say it's gender politics or especially progressive or whatnot, <laughs> yeah. but she seems like she's more of a character, as much of a character as any other character in terms of development, and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I liked that I didn't have to sit through watching De Palma sexualize a woman's body and then slash it to pieces yeah. the way. Again, the way I, I watching Rest to Kill makes me feel so squeamish because it just feels like I know this is probably I know people have argued this is commentary, this is actually a feminist critique in its own way, but it's still 
the experience of it is just so ugly. And the murders in this movie, for the most part, are much more quick. And again, Beef being the exception. Beef, I think, created as this grotesque in certain ways, even though the character is in some, t- in some ways you know, the only reasonable person in the movie. He's the guy yeah. who actually says, like, the moment he's threatened, fuck this, yeah, I'm out of here. Um, but, yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, mentioning, like, Beef says, yeah. I, I thought the, the actual way that he died was interesting um, in, in how it was filmed. I thought it was very strange. So I wasn't quite sure the technique they used, but it seems like they were, like, skipping frames to showing him showing him being able to Yeah, probably. Like yeah. yeah. It had kind of a strobe light effect, even though I'm sure they were doing something else to make it happen. Yeah, uh, no, it seemed like a like a very unique and interesting way to, to show that. I, I I haven't seen like that technique being used anywhere before. Yeah, I think you no, know, it's a cool effect. I think like the open question for me is like, all right, how much of this? It's a funny, interesting way to kill off character off. How much are we expected to be laughing at the fact that this is a big, burly man, dressed in some version of drag? Like how yeah. much? How much are we laughing at this aspect of the character? I, I and it feels like it's too much for me to feel comfortable. I guess any would be too much for me to be comfortable. Comfortable, but it oh, feels yeah. too much for me to feel like it's not intentional. Um, whereas Rocky Horror, for all the ways Rocky Horror is problematic with today's lens, you know, it was made by somebody who was trying to figure out their own gender, sexual identity, orientation, and that movie doesn't feel judgmental the way this one does. Yeah. Yeah, now that you mention it more, it does feel like this movie was like pretty judgmental about that character. Um, yeah. Even though there's also clearly so much homoerotic tension between Swan and Winslow, like it's true. Like it's yeah. it's uh, the the bit where Swan sees Winslow watching him um, with Jessica Harper, and clearly like this is what's turned him on. Like the knowledge yeah. that, that he's being uh, he's being observed, observing somebody observing him, and knowing that he's causing that person anguish is what gives him that turns him on. There is something I think really fascinating and hilarious about that, but mm-hmm. that's that's its own. I'm sure there are people who are writing papers about stuff like this, and it's the the Indian <laughs> jouissance of it. Yeah, which we didn't get into here. <laughs> um. I, I want to talk about kind of the whole sequence where he he tries to confront Swan and then the whole kind of series of events that follows because I just I love how that how that is done especially like how the courtroom scene in particular where he just turns to the camera and he's yeah. like but I'm innocent the very like modernist courtroom yeah that was very funny <laughs> and then then he you know he's like. You you volunteered to have your teeth pulled. He's like, I, I, I didn't volunteer. <laughs> it's just like it goes it goes so wrong, and he he's just so good at like acting like, you know, just so nervous and like, my whole life is being destroyed, you know. <laughs> and his his prison escape where he just like attacks a guard and just like runs and like he he climbs in the box and he's just like he's. <laughs> He's at the front steps of Swan's office. Then it's oh, it's so great. It's it's exactly how much, like, 
And I think that also is so just such great work in establishing the tone of this. Because it's like, okay, this guy, our nominal hero, is getting such an awful origin story. But <laughs> you can't take it too seriously. It is such a... Like, the moment he looks at the camera and screams, I'm innocent... That's like a Wet Hot American Summer-esque moment. Like, that's like, okay, like we're in a parody land. We don't need to get too invested in this person's actual suffering. He is a cartoon character. Uh, it might as well be Daffy Duck pointing to the camera and saying, I'm going to say. Yeah. Yeah, I just, the, the courtroom in particular is just like, I just, the, the, the like, big American flag in the background and, like, the judge who's, like, way up high. And oh, yeah. I love that shot. It's so, so good. good. So good. Um, I think you, you were mentioning a bit earlier um, how you kind of, like, fell for some of, like, the sentimentality of this movie. I, I was curious if you could, like, expand upon that. Oh, me? Yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's, I think it's, always it goes hand in hand i don't even know if I, I call it sentimentality because it's like it's i think there's some genuine emotion in the film that's often sort of underlaced with irony and satire um like i think that uh when winslow sits at the piano and plays faust and it's sort of what we're supposed to take as okay here's the real piece of music here's the emotional ballad that we'll see destroyed it's it's on the one hand i think there's genuinely you know we're seeing this person's passion and so we're not laughing at it but he's also ridiculous in this scene like no he's just kind of completely lost in his music but he's also clearly looking to make sure someone's watching him we see swan seeing him we see him nervously looking around the room as the camera pans around him i think that the, the finale where uh, he crawls into Jessica Harper's lap and dies, and yeah. um, you, it's it's it's. I think there is some real tragedy underneath this, but it's also there's some irony that no one understands. This is part of a. This is real. Ha it's happening. That there's. It's surrounded by this glitzy glam um, chaos. Like the audience surrounding uh, Phoenix and Winslow has no idea they're there and then iris is into the bird upside down and then the hell of it starts playing and immediately starts eviscerating these characters i think that it's every time there's enough real emotion that the film doesn't seem truly mean-spirited to me hmm. but it's only just enough it's only just enough uh, and i think it, it's in there in part because paul williams before this was mostly known for really saccharine soft rock um doing stuff for Karen Carpenter and um, and Streisand and whatnot. Um, he had some numbers like Old Fashioned Love Song, which I think had a lot of clever irony, but a lot of his stuff was mostly the sort of stuff that you'd expect, um, you know, to see um, on the Brady Bunch and whatnot. And so part of what he actually talks about is the way his band, who he has playing in this movie, all of them, he was like, all the stuff that you don't get to do in my other songs, all the hard stuff that you're not supposed to do because we're doing these ballads, just just go for it. Just let loose. And I think that that kind of tension between what would otherwise seem sentimental and this really hard, vicious edge is what makes the music, for me at least, work as well as it works. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. 
I don't. I I enjoyed the music. I thought it was like, the, I it just it fits. It just it fits so well, and I don't know. I found it catchy. I. Uh, yeah, I think I think you're right in saying that the film kind of does like ride this hard line from being um, satirical or like mean spirited, and uh, if it went if it went too much in like the mean spirited direction, it would have been a much different film. So yeah, the sentimentality does, does help with that. I think it also helps that there's, I think, some tension between De Palma, who clearly like has some very hard views about authenticity in music and how like you know all these artists get sold out and turned into these big stage things, and Paul Williams is going along with that, but you can tell Paul Williams also loves these genres that he's parodying. Otherwise, yeah. they wouldn't be so accurate. Um, the opening number. You don't write a song like that that satirizes Shana not so well unless you really know that kind of music yeah, um, right. and how it works. It's kind of and like a, unless you really love it on some level. Like having your cake and eating it too. Yeah, yeah. Which, when a movie pulls it off, I love it. If it manages to like both satirize and be a love letter or something and it makes me feel like those things are both true, then I think that's, that's, I think, a really hard line to walk in. For me, this movie mostly walks it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, if you don't like love the thing that you're satirizing, it's just ultimately a good satire of it. Yeah, yeah. There's also, if you do a Google like search for some of this stuff, because after uh, the hell of it got stuck in my head, and I was like, is there footage of Paul Williams performing this somewhere? And there actually is, hmm. it, but it's in like the weirdest context. Like He would, in the 70s variety show circuit, He'd appear on like the Brady Bunch variety show and he'd sing the hell of it. And or he'd appear on like a Hardy Boys special as musical guest and he'd sing the hell of it. You know, this song about dancing on the grave of this um shitty impotent rock star. And somehow, you know, the seventies flower kids are bopping along as Paul Williams just grins and sings. It's such a weird his place in pop culture is so bizarre to me. Because he's simultaneously this little, uh, he's like this mischievous figure of fun who was, you know, coked out of his mind for most of the 70s and 80s and kind of playing off his, his appearance and and making himself a caricature. And, but also writing, you know, beloved Muppet songs and mm -hmm. doing all of this achingly sincere stuff simultaneously while playing this caricature self-parody almost it's a, it's a strange arc hmm. yeah interesting I, I really don't know too much about him but uh yeah i'll have to look more into his stuff um yeah he he um he i don't know he, he seems like a cool artist to kind of like track the history of is there a person where you you dig through and you realize, oh, a handful of my favorite songs come from him, but a lot of stuff that is just I can't stand also <clears> comes from <throat> him, and that all kind of goes. I mean, I think Rainbow Connection, you know, it's a Muppet song, but it's also I think a legit great American songbook ballad. Um, he could be very profound. He could also be really smarmy, and I think and it's fun to watch interviews with him now post-recovery because he's such an interesting kind of figure who with the the way he talks about his own legacy there's a really interesting documentary called paul williams still alive 
where this guy who was a big Paul Williams fan in the 70s, 80s, who assumed he was dead, looked him up and realized, oh, he's still alive. He's, he's touring and doing small venues and whatnot. And just basically convinced him to let him do a movie about him and followed him around for years and essentially just inserted himself into, the, into Paul Williams' life and mm. became like basically like his live-in fanboy, clearly to Paul Williams' irritation. And the movie is this weird contrast between being about a rock star, pop star, figure celebrity, living in more or less small-scale anonymity, and also this fan with no self-awareness um, trying to work through his own relationship with this figure he's attached himself to. That's interesting. Well, we should check that out sometime. It's funny. He's in a Daft Punk documentary. I guess, I guess, um, he, he, that's he where the helmet comes from. Yeah. So I, I guess like, this is like Daft Punk's favorite movie, which, you know, that, <laughs> that's interesting in and of itself for a variety of reasons, but like the, the helmet influence is clearly there yep. and like, yeah, yep. I, I, <laughs> Um, our friend told us told us that like that was Daft Punk's favorite movie, and I actually didn't believe him. Like I, I thought, thought he was pulling out like Yeah, I, I thought so too. <laughs> Little did I know until I saw it that it was like, oh yeah, wait, this kind of makes sense. Oh yeah, yeah. Right, sure. right. I think the movie was bigger in France too than it was mm. in multiple places. Um, it definitely has uh, that. Even though like I knew nothing about this movie going in, when I started watching it, I'm, I I thought to myself, this is definitely a cult movie. There's yeah. no way that this was yeah. popular like instantly when it came out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, France and apparently Winnipeg, it was huge in Winnipeg to the point where I, I think people in Winnipeg didn't realize that the rest of the world had no idea what this was. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, it's such a strange. It's a cult movie that I think has taken a while to find its cult, but the people who are part of that cult are like Daft Punk or Guillermo del Toro is a huge, mm. huge oh, really? and. Uh, to the point where actually Paul Williams is doing lyrics to a Pan's Labyrinth opera because oh, of really? that relationship. Um, and if I didn't realize this, but uh, if you watch um, Kronos, there are lines of dialogue taken directly from Phantom of Paradise because Del Toro was like, I couldn't mm -hmm. think of a better way of putting it, so I just stole it. That's um, so funny. I, it's been a while since I've seen Kronos, but interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's got a legacy. It's well, it's the way um, Brian Eno often talks about the first Velvet Underground record and says that, mm -hmm. you know, maybe only 60 people bought this record, but those 60 people all started a band yeah. and became recording <laughs> artists. I love and that, that kind of feels that. the way Phantom feels to me, too, I think. Yeah. Uh, it's a small cult, but the people who are in that cult are, are some pretty big people. Yeah, very influential. It's kind of like um, Jodorowsky's Dune. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. All the people, all the people who know are big people, but for whatever reason, it just doesn't get out there as much. Yeah. But this is, uh, I, I just, I really, I really like, I, like you, I just, I really connected with this and I, I don't, I still don't know why, but like, I really love all that's going on here. And that, that may be because I kind of grew up on like seventies and eighties movies. Sure. Sure. And that, that style is definitely like prevalent here it is like despite it's being a melange of things from different eras it feels so 70s it feels like such a wonderful yeah. just crystallization of a certain 70s aesthetic yeah absolutely 
something like all the all the kind of like zooms and just just everything I, yeah <laughs> yeah oh, like yeah. i said it's just it's so hard for me to pinpoint precisely what it is but it's it's there whatever it is <laughs> yeah yeah totally totally um which is probably why i think the cult took a little harder to take around because it's sort of a movie where rocky horror has individual scenes where you can see understand why oh this it's easy to take this out of context and and win people over with it um mm. this is kind of hard to point to one moment where the movie crystallizes because it's all kind of spread throughout the entire film even down to there being just one song that feels like the movie's big song the songs are all kind of uh threaded through the whole movie and they all only really make sense in context with each other possible yeah. exception of the hell of it which i think is still just an absolute awesome uh um uh, standalone bob yeah yeah it's like how we were talking about before you can kind of like describe this movie but until you watch it you really will have no idea what it's about i really i really like the um the number where they um they start like chopping up like audience limbs to build a body i thought that was like really fun yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. um it's interesting because i guess De palma his entire thing there was this should look like uh german expressionism captain of dr caligari and whatnot mm. and it just happened to be that that look was also what kiss was just premiering like and the same year basically i think it was kiss got to it first but um Kiss was also like it would have been too early for De Palma to really know that was in the ether. Just happened to sort of work out that this movie predicts the sort of goth glam rock uh, movement that will be happening almost immediately when this movie comes out. I think I completely missed the German expressionist influence. I I didn't notice that at all. I mean, like thinking about it, I definitely like see that in the sets because like a lot of the lighting in that scene is like. It looks like a big haunted castle, and there's like you know mm -hmm. lightning striking there. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. But it also, I think, part of it is that because it also looks, the context that your that I think your brain goes to is okay, like, Kiss and Sabbath and and Bowie and whatnot, and glam rock and goth rock, all this because all the stuff that the Palma, while being ignorant of, is very much evoking. I think your brain probably goes there, even though those bands were also going for a 1930s 20s horror thing so it's sort of mm, I, I think see. it's probably easy to miss that for that reason i think i did too i had to hear him say oh yeah caligari i guess the set is this scene is a very expressionistic set the way every <laughs> big uh power rock band did at the time right okay huh. i i also find it interesting how like jessica harper's number and like i mean kind of the the first two numbers nothing particularly interesting is um or i guess maybe not the first two but like the the first two performances in there jessica harper's number and kind of the split screen nothing really happens during those musical numbers and what makes the mm -hmm. split screen interesting is because it's the split screen but right um you know, compared to something like Rocky Horror, where they're like, you know, singing in a graveyard, and they're like, you know, someone's building a body, and you know, all that's going on. This is very subdued for like, you know, a musical performance to be happening, and you kind of mentioned that with, you know, how awkward Jessica Harper really is in um, her her kind of solo scene. 
And I, I found that interesting. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of it is just the camera does things that surprise you just enough to keep you engaged. Like when Jessica Harper looks at the camera directly and sings directly to the camera, yeah. you don't expect that to happen. No, yeah. It doesn't seem like that's the kind of movie where that's supposed to happen. But it also only happens briefly. It's not like it's it's your brain doesn't have a chance to adjust and say, okay, this is what we're doing apparently. This is going to be breaking the fourth wall. Because a moment later, she is shot in profile, singing directly to Swan's booth. So who's the camera supposed to be? And I think, I don't know if those are conscious thoughts that you have when watching it, but I think they keep your brain just engaged enough to feel like something interesting is happening, even though there should be nothing happening that's especially interesting. Today, that song would be cut to shreds, I'm sure. Today, that song would be maybe 30 seconds, and you'd have to hear the entire album to hear the full song. I mean, they, they made that Elton John musical last year. They couldn't even play an entire Elton John song in its entirety in a movie about Elton John. <laughs> like That was how little um, they respected the audience's attention span. Um, it's, so it's kind of almost really thrilling to me to watch these three-minute pop song just get performed in its entirety in a narrative film. It's just such a... It doesn't happen the same way anymore. That's yeah. true. Yeah, I did. I did notice that that um the song definitely the the the, the entire song was replayed. I kind of like. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I did. It, it did kind of like lose me midway through some of them. But oh, I do, totally I do, fair. I do appreciate the fact that they um they played the entire song. Well, I think all of these things only really work fully if you also like the songs. Um, yeah. Like it's it's there are ways that I think that if you're already kind of like liking what this movie tastes like then these are all things that make you really like it even more but if you're not there then they're just ways of trying to i, I totally see it at losing your interest if it's like oh, here's another fucking song yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's listen, it goes all the way through huh mm-hmm. all right <laughs> um i certainly like i definitely like appreciate this movie i think it's very very well made but i guess i didn't really i didn't really catch that same like spark that you guys seem to have with yeah. this one. Uh, uh, that's that's fine. Yeah. yeah. I don't blame you. Oh yeah, totally. And it's De Palma is a very musical director too. Like it's uh, all of his movies have really huge scores. Like scores that are making big statements that are driving the narrative. And I often find that my enjoyment of his movies on some level lives and dies on how much I like the music. Like something like mm-hmm. Dress to Kill or Body Double, I'm not that big on Pino Donaggio. I think his music just feels so weirdly sentimental and over the top. And, and for me, that means these bold moves that I like in principle just kind of fall deaf for me. Um, whereas something like Obsession or this, where the music just really hits my pleasure centers, I'm like, yeah, but crank it. <laughs> Let's do this. <laughs> it's just, I don't care if there's no plot happening. Just crank it to the max. It's kind of like a classic Hollywood use of music, right? Like a, yeah, yeah. Um, and he is very much, I think, of the auteurs. Uh, you know, Scorsese and, and Coppola, music is important to them, but I think they were also kind of a little afraid of going too big with it. Uh, Scorsese often still sort of is. Um, yeah, I think like Scorsese been... definitely, at, at least like during his earlier films and his films like in the 90s, like used more like pop music rather than like a yeah score. something um, where like 
with exceptions like age of innocence yeah. had the, that great bernstein score um but scorsese also gangs of new york he it had this big epic orchestral score by elmer bernstein and weinstein was like this isn't cool this isn't hip you gotta cut it mm. and scorsese said okay fine let's put some pop songs in here De palma probably i think a big reason why he hasn't been able to have as easy a time making movies today is that his sensibility of what music does in the movie is so attached to what his how he makes movies they're big they're maximalist statements yeah and that doesn't really fly the same way it used to yeah he does seem kind of like a relic unfortunately yeah and you know i i all four of the movies that i've seen by him i i pretty much loved so to see him yeah I'd, I'd love to see like one one last kind of like i don't know would, would a24 make a brian de palma movie that like a24 would fund anything yeah that's true <laughs> yeah i don't know like it's i think what's hard for him is that the sort of stuff that he does needs a budget right like yeah, uh, sure. yeah. It, it needs something phantom i think most of their budget went to lawsuits because they had to fight off so much of this i think unfortunate Universal thinks it's too close to Phantom of the Opera, so they have to pay off Universal. And <laughs> Led Zeppelin's label thinks that Swan Records is too close to their label, so they have to remove all traces of Swan Records in I the heard movie. About that, right? Yeah. Um, um, so that's where the money goes, which is ridiculous. But I don't know, though. I mean, I think the last time he really had um, the last movie he made that was a big success was probably Mission Impossible, right? Um, yeah. Which I really like. I think that's my favorite of that franchise, in part because it just feels like the story isn't much of anything, but it's such a great showcase for all these great set pieces, and the music is so interesting and, and tongue-in-cheek, and the, the way that he plays with uh, uh, camera is just so fun. I don't really see a movie today letting him have the same sort of free reign to just go nuts in a studio template. Yeah, probably not. Brian De Palma. I, mean, I, I, though, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe Marvel will let him do a movie, and then they'll like just edit it in a way that makes it containable. But I can't really see him going along with that either. Yeah. <laughs> God, although, think... although that would be like, I'm, I'm sure that would be like super interesting to watch. I, oh, I would love it. If it happened, I would love it. Um, I don't really see it happening. Yeah. Um, I really wonder uh, how you handle CGI. <laughs> It really feels like it would... Well, I can see him being, like... He does use CGI missions to Mars. Uh, I remember that. Mm. Really poorly. Um, <laughs> that movie just does not... Uh... Well, I haven't seen it since I was in high school. Maybe I feel differently if I watched it now. I remember it just feeling so miscalculated in every, at every stage of the, of the way. Maybe I feel differently now that those sorts of movies just don't get made anymore. I don't know. Um, I can see someone like De Palma seeing CGI and being like, "Finally, I can do anything. Finally, I don't have to like, you know, worry about whether or not the camera can fit here because it can fit anywhere." But I also see that kind of thinking ruining the creativity that goes into having to like plan a shot sequence. Yeah. Um, the way it has for so many filmmakers, because like you can use it as like corrective measure. Yeah. 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 Um. So much of Phantom's energy comes from he's got this fixed set. He's got like you know the sound stages and this theater that he's shooting inside. So he has to figure out from a practical standpoint 
how to make the camera make sense here and how to build an entire sequence around the relationship between this camera and the set. Something like, you know, the, um, the Lion King remake where they're building an entire digital universe and the camera can be anywhere in this universe no matter what. That kind of freedom, I think, just takes away the imagination that comes from, from necessity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> do we have any um, closing thoughts um, on Phantom of the Paradise? I think you you all should see Phantom of the Paradise if you've been watching this episode and haven't seen it. <laughs> it's, it's certainly a very unique film. It's a unique film. It's also, I find that people I know who are big cinephiles who don't like Brian De Palma often will say, this is the one that I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're someone who like saw Scarface and were like, ah, this is a little too much for me, you might still like Phantom of Paradise. You might like find this is just that sweet spot for you. Or you might hate it, but also feel like you watched something that unlike anything else you've ever seen before. You'll get something out of it. One strong emotion or another. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, um, the, the final part of our show, we just talk about... Um, piece of media art that we've been watching reading playing or listening to like any music film video games books that we've been interacting with so i've decided to label this section what you're watching what you're watching <laughs> there you go what you're watching after like what 20 episodes we finally have a name for this section yeah <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> so uh professor cote what, what you what you watching i've been bouncing around with a lot of different things i guess um been kind of watching off and on with my wife uh, she was a huge rachel uh Frona cody who um also writes on on, on the internet and whatnot um and has a book uh which i'll plug her book actually i'll plug her book too much uh how victorian constraints still by women today um, hmm. um she's great she's a huge buffy the vampire slayer fan and she's finally last year she was like you're watching this and and so i've been going with her kind of off non going through the entirety of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel, which feels a little weird now that we kind of know how toxic Joss Whedon is, yeah. but <laughs> separate that from, it's been fun. It's been fun to see yeah. these stories and, and these tropes that are now kind of well-worn get their start. Um, I think going back and watching Little Muppet Show episodes, now they're up on Disney+. Plus. Um, it's, that's a lot of fun to see that show in its original stages. Um, I, uh, feel like there's something else, uh, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. You know, I'll bounce in and out of different movies, sure. depending on what's on the Criterion, um, and whatnot. But, yeah, um. Do you ever, uh, think you've seen on, uh, Criterion recently? So last thing I that, oh, um, I finally got around to, um, John and Faith Hoobly, this uh, married couple animators. Um, John Hoobly was one of like started at Disney in the '40s and was one of the founding members of UPA, this animation studio that kind of broke away from Disney to be more avant-garde. Hmm. He eventually, with his wife, just started doing these experimental shorts for art galleries and you know independently financed, sometimes for Sesame Street. Um, Criterion has a collection of their stuff. It's great. The John and Faith Hoobly collection. Um, these beautiful, abstractly animated pieces. Um, 
uh, Dizzy Gillespie is often part of them. Um, there's a so many. They're great. Uh, different length. Some are 15 minutes long. Some are full feature length. But mm. I think they're great little things to take in chunks to feel like you're getting something that's someone's genuine artistic, outside the system expression. Uh, but it's, they're also made with so much love and creativity, and um, they're not hard to watch because they're still animated films that are on some level at least supposed to be accessible to children for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, could not recommend those more highly, and those are all on Criterion right now. Cool. I would love to check those out. Yeah, I haven't heard of them good. either. I'll, I'll check them out for sure. They yeah. sound interesting. They would do things like they'd record their kids playing, and then they would animate... They said that that kind of uh, just raw sound of two kids making things up, and they would animate it uh, with illustrations that looked kind of like a kid's drawings, but also were designed by people who you know, truly know how to do graphic design and animation. Um, yeah. And they're good to balance in and out of. If you like Don Hertzfeld, for example, he's very clearly influenced by, by this Yeah, movie. yeah. It reminded me a lot of Don Hertzfeld, what you're saying. Yeah, I think uh, World of Tomorrow is sort of uh, inspired on some level by Hubley shorts like Moonbird and whatnot. I am so glad you showed us It's Such a Beautiful Day because I fell in love with that movie. Oh, I'm really glad. Um, yeah, that's a movie where I feel like whenever I show it to my students, I feel kind of guilty because the reaction <laughs> is often it ends and some people are sobbing. And there's a, people who don't usually express a lot of emotion in class are like, why did you do that to me? Now I have to go home and feel these feelings. Um, yeah, it's really special to me too, obviously. Yeah. I I think I made a, um like, favorite films of the decade list, and, like, that just ended up being my, my spot for the year it came out because I was just, like, I just loved it so much. Well, that makes me so happy. I'm glad yeah. I introduced that to you. I'm, I'm glad to have seen it. Cool. That's great. Uh, would you would you care to share, Duran, what you have been Nicholas watching? James Nimkov, I would love to share what I've been watching. Just say my full name. Yeah. It makes me embarrassed. <laughs> All right, anyway, uh, <laughs> let's see. So, in terms of reading, I I read um, this book, Hollywood Babylon Two, by um, one of my favorite filmmakers, Kenneth Anker. Um, it's this like very strange collection of like weird Hollywood rumors and gossip that he like molded into this this book, um, and it's very it's very like it's hard to kind of make out exactly what what he was going for, but he like paints this very interesting picture of like the darker side or like the um what's underneath the surface of hollywood what doesn't get said kind of. yeah which i found i found very interesting because it also deals with a lot of like the um the cultural issues and the problematic, problematic issues of hollywood going back ever since like its founding um so like there's so many for example um celebrities that were uh that were gay and it was kind of like an open secret in the Hollywood communities and this like goes back to like the silent era and like the 30s and stuff like that um and I thought it was very interesting how like he highlighted that part in his in his book um so that was that was a great read um Hollywood Babylon 2 I would definitely recommend it I've heard great things about it I need to read that myself yeah it's it's crazy crazy um yeah anger is a genius um in terms of what I've been watching um 
since I've uh, I'm with Nick right now, we've been watching a lot of the same movies, so I won't I won't talk about those that we've both watched. But on my own, um, I recently watched uh, Vagabond by Agnes Varda, which I thought was pretty good. I thought it was a, uh, a better version of Nomadland, <laughs> personally. <laughs> Maybe um, I should watch that then. Yeah, it, it's good. It's, it, it's, it's a good one to check out. It wasn't my favorite Varda, but um, certainly a very solid film in her filmography. Um, and last night, I watched uh, Oasis by Lee Cheng Dong. Um, who's probably now my favorite Korean filmmaker. Um, I saw I saw Burning around when it came out and that like completely blew me away. And so that uh, led me to like a rabbit hole to try to check out like all of his movies. But his and then you got like, a the biggest poster you possibly could. I got like a like a six foot by like four foot burning poster <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> um, it takes up an entire wall in his room. Oh, it's so sick. I love it. Um, but yeah, no, his films are like really hard to find besides his last three. Um, and I was, I was lucky to get a copy, which I obtained completely legally, of course, using no other means. Um, I have a feeling there might be a white lie here. <laughs> uh, that was, that was a, that was a very good, very devastating film. Like, I mean, all, all those movies are just going to make you have a terrible day. So that's, that's why you watch his stuff. <laughs> that's uh, that's it for me Nick what have you been been watching reading listening to I'll start with uh, the one thing I've been reading um, yesterday I picked up a um, kind of like coffee table book about um, the making of E.T. which is like kind of the movie mm. that got me into movies so that was like that was that, I just you know reading about like one a, a movie like that to you is always going to be like fascinating um, lots of quotes from like Spielberg and Kathleen Kennedy throughout it and it's just it provides a lot of insight into what went into that movie and I loved it um, I'm not done with it yet but it's it's a good read so far um, in terms of movies um, me and Duran watched <laughs> have we have we we haven't talked about anything post Pan's Labyrinth have we no but I just like bit. focus on some of the yeah the ones that I so I <laughs> But um, we saw uh, the Giallo uh, Blood and Black Lace, which I thought was really good. What did mm -hmm. you think? I liked it. Yeah. Um, I watched another one that same day. Uh, Don't Touch Red Doctor. Who directed that? Was that one of Argento's? No, it was a Mario Bava, I think. Oh, oh right. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then I, uh, I did a few rewatches. I, I rewatched uh, Captain America Civil War, which I still hold as the best Captain America movie, even though I know Winter Soldier is... Uh, is, is kind of the, the favorite. I watched Doctor Sleep, which was interesting. The thing about Doctor Sleep is that it's not really a sequel to The Shining. It's a Stephen King adaptation, and you got to go in expecting a Stephen King adaptation because right. otherwise you will just be disappointed. Um, obviously, we saw Nomadland. Um, that was... I really liked that. Um, we, you obviously stated your opinion before that it's kind of slumped on you. Uh, we watched Clute for a class. Um, oh, I rewatched that with my wife recently. That's cool. Uh, I I didn't really like it. I thought it was kind yeah. of boring for a conspiracy yeah. thriller. Yeah, me too. I love Jane Fonda in it though. She's she's amazing. Yeah, she's definitely a good. Yeah, player. I think if you're going in looking for a conspiracy thriller, it's not really what the movie is. Um, yeah, it's because uh, it, we watched it for um, uh, 
conspiracy theory uh, film class. Yeah. It's kind of like what it was framed as. Yeah. And then, um, skip over the first Avenger, but, um, Crash. We saw Crash. Cronenberg's Cronenberg's Crash, I should say. Not not the the Oscar winner. Um, I, oh, I loved Crash. I love Crash so much. It's just such, like, a weird movie that, like, you know, just movies like that don't get made anymore, and thank God for Cronenberg. God, I... I'm so excited for for what he's doing with Viggo Mortensen, because I hear it's supposed to be more like body horror now. Yeah. Oh. Have um, you all seen um, Existence? I haven't. Oh, yeah. I really want to though. That looks. That's that looks my absolute super favorite. Film. It's it's well because the premise. I would actually recommend looking at a plot like brief synopsis first because it will suggest a movie kind of like The Matrix or whatnot. And what the movie actually ends up being, just by the way he. Cronenberg's ideas about video games and virtual reality are just so beautifully Cronenbergian. Um, <laughs> yeah, like high recommendation. I'll check it out after after Crash. Like, well, even after like Video Drama, I didn't want to check most, most of the stuff out. All right, and then I'll I'll try and finish up speed round this. I saw uh, WandaVision finished and um, thought it was all right. <laughs> thought it was thought it was okay. <laughs> Could have been better. <laughs> Uh, that's that's really all I'll say about that. Um, saw Peeping Tom, oh, which Peeping was Tom good. Was so good. Yeah, that's that great. was really good. Yeah, I, that was my first uh, Powell and Pressburger. Well, I guess that one's just Powell. That's that's such that's like such a, a good. It's such a outlier good companion piece with yeah. uh, Psycho. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it is a strange outlier. It, it kind of like scratches on just like part of film that I feel like a lot of people don't want to acknowledge. Just like and how it's like inherently like voyeuristic. And mm-hmm. the last yeah. Of it. Um, and how well, like fiction what's uh i forgot to mention this during the actual discussion but i i was intrigued by the use of cameras in phantom of the paradise the the voyeuristic nature of that as well mm-hmm. yeah uh, like everything oh yeah being recorded definitely, definitely yeah that's that's one of palma's favorite pet themes and it's used in such great funny ways in this movie yeah mm-hmm. um, um i love that swan has a camera on his roof just in case <laughs> yeah that's so funny having yeah. sex. like this is like clearly this is not the first time he has done this <laughs> yeah <laughs> the camera's in like a specific position yeah <laughs> yeah and I, I i love how it like it even like some of the some of the edits are like you are looking through some of those cameras sometimes i love that mm-hmm. um but anyway i have like four more movies that i want to mention so i'll just finish this up um so we saw the conformist um also very good yes, uh we saw chunking express uh very very good that was my first oh, yeah. time seeing that i i loved it definitely my favorite one um we watched the ultimate edition of batman versus superman in preparation for, oh, god. for <laughs> just greatest god. movie ever oh made. my god oh, it was um man. Uh, my my review this time was there is something here it just requires much better hands than Snyder's to make it work. I think I, think I hate that movie more than I've ever hated a movie. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, but I God, I don't want to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, Sorcerer. We saw William Friedkin Sorcerer. So good. That was. Uh, that's fantastic. Oh, that's that's a new favorite. That's that movie is so good. Yeah. That um, movie opened with Star Wars, apparently, and oh my like God. one of the like biggest signs of what was happening in Hollywood was that 
this was like the competition for Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I think yeah. It's, but I think it's, it's a really fantastic film. And it's, then yeah, it's great. Finally, uh, Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer, um, which I thought was pretty good. I um, I really liked Michael Rooker's performance and um, a lot of the stuff that they do with like voyeurism and violence is, I just thought it was very interesting. I know you kind of you skipped out on it like halfway through, but I like fell asleep. Like, <laughs> I, I, I've been meaning to rewatch. I was too tired. Yeah, I don't know. But, Watching like um, great stuff. It sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a it's a good time to be a cinephile when um, you can see like every movie you want whenever you want because there's no new movies coming out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, if you all liked uh, Mario Bava, recommend very strongly his movie Danger Diabolique. Um, not a, a giallo, um, even though it's got some similar styles. It's like this comic book movie, and it never gets discussed with other comic book movies. It's like this gentleman thief who has like an, a bat lair, Batman like bat cave lair where he steals all of his stuff. It's it's wild. It's such a fun movie. Um, and I, it's one of those movies where when you see it, you're like, why hasn't, why is no one talk about this? This is so much fun. Mm. Yeah. This, uh, I, I, I already love this. I already love the, the single <laughs> screenshot that they've provided me with. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, Professor uh, Rismini, um, I'm taking his uh, Italian cinema two class. He recommended that one to me. So I asked him about oh, like um, some like cool Italian horror or like Jalo films to check out. And yeah, while this is not really like in that category, he said it was definitely worth checking out. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Henry was the last one, so. Cool. Yeah. Um, right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. So this was so much fun. Thank you so yeah. much. This is great. I'm glad. Yeah. yeah. I hope you had a had a good time. Hope you had a good. Discussion. I had a great time. Hope to hope to maybe even have you on in the future again. Yeah, I, anytime you want to have me, I am around. Especially <laughs> now, but in general. But, but I, I love this stuff. Awesome. And thanks for the uh, very unique recommendation. Very interesting. Nope. Hey, if you want a unique recommendation, that's what I'm here for. <laughs> <laughs> if you want something where you can at least say, well, I wasn't bored, I guess. <laughs> very hard to be bored during Phantom of the Paradise, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, all right. Thanks for coming on. Thank and, you so uh, much. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll see you all the next time we record. <laughs> Whenever that may be. See you. Cheers.